0: We will see these kinds of cultural conflicts between what we expect and what our tools do. These will increase. And that gets especially problematic and interesting as our tools get smarter. So we have an AI. We have a robot. We have something that is interactive and learns. What is it learning to do? What have we told it implicitly or otherwise? What it should learn to do. And, and so there are plenty. Of, there are plenty of examples of AI systems that are learning the wrong thing. You may recall a couple of years ago Microsoft had something, uh, uh, a Twitter bot named Tay. Tay tweets, and it was uh, it was essentially it was a learning system put on Twitter to be able to interact with people and learn from you know the broader internet community. And within 24 hours, Tay had learned how to be a racist, how to be a neo-Nazi, and. How to be an, an avid Trump supporter. You know, I, I think that things are g- going to get a lot worse before they get better. But the things, you know, the, the tools and the ideas that we have, the end of the century could be just disp- near utopia if we can get through the first half of the century.
1: Today we have a special bonus episode. Today's episode is coming from my new Fringe FM podcast where we explore the edges of human understanding. TED-level conversations with TED-level speakers, but extended. So, I've always loved TED. You get to hear some of the smartest and most influential and innovative minds in the world. Now we're expanding upon these 5-10 to minute conversations and going into a full hour, diving into genetics, space, AI, and the future of humanity. It's very interesting looking into the Fringe technologies, especially when it applies to possibly investing in some of the transformational tech of the future. If you're interested, like this episode, go to fringe.fm or fringe.fm slash iTunes or slash Stitcher. You can find the podcast there, and be sure to subscribe. You won't be getting these in your regular feed after the first couple of episodes. Just doing this to make sure that if you really are interested in learning more about the, the sci-fi tech of the future, really where we are headed as a as species, and really where you should be looking as an angel investor or VC, then fringe.fm. Go there, subscribe, subscribe on iTunes, leave a review if you like it. Again, in any of your podcast players, just search for Fringe FM all one word, and you should be able to find the show. And now, without further ado, let's jump into it. Welcome to Fringe FM, the podcast that explores the edges of human understanding and looks at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at fringe.fm. We started Fringe FM to both share and shape our collective future and bring us towards something better. Today, I'm honored and excited to have Jame Castillo on the program, one of the leading futurists of our era, to discuss where he sees humanity headed. Jame is a writer, speaker, and futurist that focuses on the intersection of emerging technologies, environmental dilemmas, and cultural transformation, specializing in the design and creation of plausible scenarios of the future. He writes mainly on the importance of long-term systemic thinking, emphasizing the power of openness, transparency, and flexibility as catalysts for building a more resilient future in society. Selected by Foreign Policy Magazine as a top 100 global thinker, John specializes in provocative future scenarios. It's Very interesting, very exciting. He's featured at TED, opening for Al Gore. He's author of the nonfiction book Hacking the Earth. In today's episode, we discuss why we may be heading to a five to six degree warmer world the biggest threats to humanity's existence, how technology and humanity intertwine and co-evolve, why Jame's is pessimistic in the short term and optimistic in the long term, Jame's thoughts on the cons of geoengineering, the important but overlooked drivers of climate change, why he forecasts rather than predicts the future, the implications of autonomous driving and automation, and much, much more. And now, without further ado, I give you Jame Kashi. We choose to go to the
0: moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: You dropped the PhD application into the toilet. What was that we were talking about before the program? Oh, no, it's the, it was the uh, PhD qualifying
0: examination. I went to uh, grad school at UC Berkeley way, way, way back in the 1990s. And the way the PhD system is set up there, or at least in, in politics, because that's why I started political science. You go through the coursework, do your you know, do the graduate student instruction, et cetera, and then you take a couple of qualifying examinations before you move on to being a PhD candidate. And in nineteen ninety 1990, nineteen ninety-one, I think, I was doing my well, to give you a sense of the of the date, I was doing the Soviet and Eastern Europe qualifying exam. And the way these exams are set up, you they basically lock you in a room, uh in one of the one professor's office. And for the whole day, and they give you a, bu- a bunch of questions, and you write out the answers. Way back in those dark ages, most people did it by hand. But I had just purchased a, you know, brand spanking new Texas Instruments TI two thousand laptop that had a you know, powerful two eighty six processor, Ooh. and um, I think a full a full megabyte of RAM. And so I asked if I could to type because I can type a lot faster than I can write. And they said, sure. You no, know, what I would have to do is. uh, print it out at the end and still turn in a hard copy. That's fine. And so I did the exam on the computer and, you know, I'm, I'm smart. So I said, well, you know, if the computer crashes halfway through and th- then I'm hosed. So this way, instead, I'm going to save my exam to the floppy disk rather than to the hard drive so that if the computer crashes, I can just take the floppy, print out what I've done and finish my hand. Yeah, I'm a smart guy. So, you know, fortunately the, the machine didn't crash at all. And I had been drinking a lot of coffee for the whole day. And so on my way to the computer lab to print out my exam, I stopped in the men's room. Now, this was California in the early 90s, definitely drought season. And so I go to the urinal, put my floppy disk on the shelf above the urinal, do my business. Don't flush because you know drought. Reach up and rather than grabbing the disk fully, (laughs) I knock it and I can just see still see in slow motion the flipping of the disk as it goes splash into the urinal. Pull it out. And, you know, in filmmaking, there is something referred to as the Dutch angle. I don't know if you've ever watched the old, old Batman TV show when we're in the villain's lair, suddenly everything is, uh, it's tilted. That's the way things looked for me. Suddenly the entire restroom was tilted and I couldn't believe that this was happening. I grab a towel, I, you know, paper towel. I, I take this, what am I going to do? I walk to the, to the computer lab, grab the computer tech guy, take him back to his office, explain what happens. And after he stops laughing, He says, okay, well, let's see what we can do to to rescue this. Put this to the skin. It's dead. We go through a number of minutes of, you know, trying to recover any kind of data, even taking the magnetic media out of the shell and putting it into a new shell. Nothing. It's a dead parrot. It's pining for the fjords. And unfortunately, I was using WordPerfect, a DOS word processor that would delete. It had backup file, but it would delete it when you put the program because of course. So I've told a few people I go to the the head of the department, and I explained what happened. And he said, Well, you know, after he stops laughing, he says, Well, you know, sorry, you just have to take the exam all over again next semester. <sighs> so, my, uh, the woman who is now my wife was working at UC Berkeley at the time. And I went to her at the end of the day, explained what happened. She did not laugh. What she said was, It's really too bad that you can't recover the backup file, which I, I wasn't aware of at that point that there was a backup file. And I had just installed the new version of DOS that had an undelete feature. So I ran that, found a 97% complete version of the exam, ran with the laptop to the department, got an extra 15 minutes to finish it up, print it out, turn it in, and I passed. So I had a, a couple of epiphanies that arose from that story. The first was marry this woman. And the second was, no matter how many backups you think you have, make another. So I have become a belt and suspenders and staples and uh, and glue kind of guy for backups. I think my, my current setup is I have two separate backup hard drives back up to the, back up to the cloud and I replicate my main computer on a, on a couple of different laptops as well. So I'm not losing my stuff. And thus but, the uh, yeah,
1: that was that was my fun story of uh, you know, entering the digital age in grad school. I imagine that set you up. You see how terrible the technology is and that inspired you to go bigger, to go further. Hey, Matt here. Pay close attention to Jame's story. Someone who overcame incredible challenges to pursue a PhD program and some of the problems that it illustrates with our existing educational structure.
0: Oh, no. It, it's, um, well, here's the funny thing is that I actually don't have my doctorate because in 90, you know, after I passed all of my qualifying exams, I actually wanted to write a dissertation in political science on the role of emerging technologies on political power, on international political power, which you know at this point seems like a completely sensible topic. I could not get a committee. I didn't, you know, there were some people who were saying, well, that's, that's too speculative. And some people saying, well, no, that's, that's uh, too historical. So I actually walked away from the program eventually because I wanted to write about how, you know, the social and political impacts of technology or how technology affects society and politics. And, you know, UC Berkeley at the time wasn't ready for that. And uh, so that's the direction my, my uh, career has eventually taken. And I think I'm actually in a better position now than I would have been if I had stuck through and written something on the global textile trade regime just to get a PhD. So it's not so much that I'd see technology as being a big, risky, a big, big, dangerous monster looming over us as I recognize both intellectually and viscerally that the tools that we make have um, a social impact, a political impact, and affect our behavior in unexpected ways and we can't think of them solely as devices solely as toys and tools that they are actually cultural
1: artifacts as much as they are you know technological devices and perhaps even cultural drivers especially that's prevalent today if you look at the rise of social media the rise of mobile computing and as we get into IoT and more complicated terrain it gets even more complex how do you how do you forecast forward where do you see us headed we're doomed we're absolutely doomed
0: that's great with your voice, because you've got the perfect <laughs> voice to say, doom. We are doomed. I had a bizarre experience once. Do uh, you know who uh, Will Wheaton is? Uh, he, yes. He, uh, he and a few, uh, Paul and Storm and a few other folks, uh, Adam Savage from Mythbusters, used to have a show, that stage show they would do called, well, I'm blanking on what it's called, uh, Woodstock. And uh, one year they're in San Francisco, and I, I've known Will for a few years, and he said, hey, one of our speakers dropped. Do you want to come and be, a, be part of Woodstock? And, you know, you don't say no to something like that. So I did up a whole routine, 15, 20 minute talk slash routine on the end of the world. And this was done at the San Francisco, some big uh, San Francisco, let's see if I can figure this out. Basically a big big San Francisco performance hall. Yeah. Held like a thousand people or more. And uh, I got the entire audience to shout doomed at the same time. I think it's the highlight of my career. Sorry, I, I tend to go off on tangents, so just fair
1: warning. No, fair warning oh. is perfectly fine. That's where the interesting <laughs> stuff lies. So where do I see this going? Let
0: me just actually preface this by saying that I don't make predictions, and most futurists that, I, that I work in this field these days steer very wide away from the term prediction. I do forecasts. I do scenarios because ultimately I know I'm going to be wrong, that whatever I come up with as a vision of the future is going to be wrong. In important ways, but my goal is to be usefully wrong. That is to come up with uh, ideas and tease out consequences and uh, sort of illuminate some of the implications of the choices we're making today. Not because the world will turn out exactly like that, but because you, as listener, you as client, you as audience, will hear this and it'll sort it'll spark an epiphany. It'll spark a moment for you of oh, I never saw it that way, and X, Y, Z. And oh, I see exactly how that fits into what I'm doing here. That's a consequence that never occurred to me. So my goal is to be a source of illumination of possibilities, not a not a profit of what the future will be.
1: Just wanted to take a quick time out to acknowledge the wisdom of admitting when we're wrong. Now that we've given that a bit of time, which is something that I think all of us should focus on, we can jump back to the program.
0: That said, one of the important things that when we look ahead around our technologies is the degree not just how much our technologies influence our culture but how much our culture influences our technologies how much the beliefs we have about right and wrong the what we assume people should know how much these expectations about norms and about what's ethical and what's not ethical these get fed into our the, the technologies and tools that we create you know think about a user interface of a computer the choices that the designer makes as to what different icons mean, the choices that what gets included and what doesn't get included, in something really as basic and fundamental as, an, as a user interface, these come from cultural assumptions about meaning, about what the expected behavior will be. And so when you sit down at a piece of technology, whether it's a, uh, a computer or a television, or you know, basically anything that we make is a kind of technology. When you sit down at these things and have an experience where what you expect the system to do doesn't match what it does, you're actually having a cultural conflict. And what I see happening as what I see is very likely to happen over the course of the next 20, 20, 30 years is that our, as our culture continues to diversify and importantly, as different fringe subcultures end up being able to connect with each other, mostly online and basically strengthen by, being, by having this communication, we will see these kinds of cultural conflicts between what we expect and what our tools do. You know, these will increase. And that gets especially problematic and interesting as our tools get smarter. So we have an AI, you know, we have a robot, we have something that is interactive and learns. What is it learning to do? What have we told it implicitly or otherwise? What it should learn to do. And so there video. are plenty there are plenty of examples of AI systems that are learning the wrong thing. You may recall a couple of years ago Microsoft had something uh, uh, a Twitter bot named Tay. Tay tweets, and it was uh, it was essentially it was a learning system put on Twitter to be able to interact with people and learn from you know the broader internet community. And within 24 hours, Tay had learned how to be a racist, how to be a neo-Nazi, and how to be an, an avid Trump supporter. You know, not saying that these are necessarily all the same thing, but here's a situation where basically 4chan and other internet troll groups decided to play with it and teach it, teach it to do bad things. And that's sort of like the most explicit example, but we're seeing over and over again, these AI, these learning systems, learning the wrong thing. And, you know, whether it's a, a face recognition system that can't recognize black faces or, you know, a, uh, an autofocus system that if you have an interracial interracial couple can't give you a clear view of both faces at the same time you know these these systems are designed based on expectations based on norms based on what the designers have experienced and that doesn't necessarily map to what the broader world experiences and believes to be true
1: so how do we as a culture program in the beliefs incentives and morals that we want to be built into these technologies so that some people don't get left behind Sometimes slowing things down, taking a breath, and pausing to think about the possibilities and implications of our actions is important. That's what we're doing here. Pay attention to Jame, his thoughts on the future, and how creators can try to attempt to build something better without falling victim to the traps that humanity's fallen for in the past. Humbly,
0: and with a willingness to understand that sometimes we're going to be wrong. And I know that isn't necessarily the answer you're looking for. But I, I mean that sincerely, that there is such an a, a habit of believing yourself to be the smartest person in the room in the, in, in the tech world that very often don't want to admit to ourselves that we've made a mistake. And so being willing to say, okay, well, I got that wrong. What can we do to change this to make this right? Being conscious of the possibility that you may get something wrong. That's a Big leap towards being able to do things eventually in the correct way or in a in a useful and productive way. We're going to need to figure out how to make our machines, our learning systems, our AI, how we how to make them flexible themselves. So you know, whether it is and how they interact with other people, with how they interact with people, what kinds of things they they promote to us, what kinds of things they don't. Because you you think about you you know spending some time on Facebook or Twitter, you spend some time on the web, and a lot of what's happening is that there are systems that are learning what you're doing and trying to promote things to you, you know, advertising and more. And a lot of these ads are based on models that that derive from a narrow view of people, and so we need to be able to understand that there are different cultural backgrounds, people are going to have different kinds of norms, and there are going to be people who just simply will reject what you're offering. And that's not wrong. It's just different. And so, I mean, if, if there's a lesson that, ar- that comes out of all of this is just that the diversity of human
1: culture and belief is still far greater than the, than the diversity of our technologies. I think that's a good way of summing it up. I want to transition a little bit. So you've done and looked quite a bit into geoengineering, climate change, and the all-important burger. I want to I want to get into what your what your thoughts are today on how we can start to fight climate change more effectively and what the what some of the problems you see with geoengineering. Okay, uh, that's, how to fight climate change effectively? Start doing something about it twenty five years
0: ago. Yeah, absent that, uh, a focus on energy efficiency and moving away from fossil fuels. That's going to be a critical part of all of it. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I wrote about. Ooh, over ten years ago, that got a little bit of attention was I calculated the carbon footprint of a cheeseburger, and that was because at the time that was the beginning of the con- the notion of carbon markets and how you have different industries trading you know uh, allowances for certain amounts of uh, CO2 emissions, and there was pricing made on how you know how many thousand euros per ton per metric ton of carbon, et cetera. And so I wondered, okay, well that's that's fine at the at the industrial level, but what about the personal level? What is
1: the, what kind of carbon tax should I pay on something prosaic like a burger? Before we jump to the answer, why don't you think about it for a bit? How much carbon emissions do you think go into an average everyday cheeseburger you grab at McDonald's or Burger King? Think about it, write it down, and then we'll see how close your answer is to what John May says. And so started
0: digging through all these numbers. And turns out that when you include everything about the production of a our cheeseburger, including the, the methane farts from the cattle, which turns out to be a really big issue. Mm-hmm. What you end up with is about four and a half kilograms of CO2 equivalent per quarter pound burger. And okay, what does that mean? That's, is that a lot? Is that a little? Well, in terms of tax, that would be a fraction of a penny based on carbon, carbon prices at the time. But because we eat so many burgers in the US every year, the total CO2 equivalent footprint from all of the burgers that we've that we uh, consume. Something it turns out to be something
1: like 200 million metric tons of CO2 equivalent. Just to put that in perspective for you guys. That's the same weight as 181 million Boeing 747s. 181 million Boeing 747s. That is a lot of carbon emissions. And it's been a while,
0: so that number may may be off a bit, but it's a, it's a very large number. And it turns out that it's actually greater than the total carbon footprint of the emissions of all of the SUVs on the road. Okay. So laying that out there as okay, this is an interesting data point, it tends it helps to show that not all of our carbon emissions that are driving climate change come from obvious sources. They don't all come from the tailpipe, don't all come from a power plant. That there are things that have a climate impact that are completely unexpected. And so you know, one of the best things you can do to, cu- to fight carbon change, climate change yourself, stop eating burgers, stop eating meat. And a lot of people aren't going to like that, but you, know, you asked. In terms of geoengineering, uh, <laughs> for those of you, for those of the audience who are not familiar with the concept, geoengineering is the idea of intentionally changing global geophysical systems in order to reduce the harmful impact of atmospheric CO2. And that can be done through uh, what's called carbon dioxide removal, which is, as the name suggests, pulling CO2 out of the air, usually with trees or genetically engineered trees or with algae blooms in the oceans. And that takes a long time, but it's probably a good thing. And the other is solar radiation management that is blocking a small percentage of incoming sunlight. And that's the kind of thing that you might once have seen parodied as a giant mirror in space. Futurama did a great episode about that but what, the way it's done now or the way it's talked about being done now is through some kind of particulate matter put into very high altitudes put into the stratosphere to block out something like 3% of incoming sunlight now what that would do is hold down temperatures because and we see this happening we know that when a volcano goes off that it actually tends to hold down temperatures for a, a short amount of time so when mount pinatubo one of the biggest eruptions we've had in recent in, in recent decades when Mount Pin- Pinatubo erupted, that actually held temperatures down by about a degree uh, for about a year. So if you do something like that, if you pump uh, literally gigatons of sulfur dioxide precursors into the stratosphere, there's a possibility of holding temperatures down. That's appealing to some people. Now, it doesn't do anything about carbon. So carbon keeps accumulating in the atmosphere. And all of the side effects of of uh, carbon intensity, such as ocean, you know, ocean acidification, a number of other things. All that continue, all these continue, so you're not actually solving anything, you're just basically putting a tourniquet on the wound. I mean a tourniquet is not something that you want to use except unless it's a desperate a desperate moment and that the same can be said about geoengineering, solar radiation management, geoengineering. If the choice is between a horrible, horrible fate and doing something just abysmally dangerous, like putting gigatons of sulfur into this, into the this stratosphere and having to continue to do that going forward for decades or more then you know there will be some situations that are simply so desperate that people will decide to do something dangerous because the alternative is death and so that is the you know that's what we're facing with geoengineering as a possibility that it's a really stupid thing that we may end up having to do because we aren't getting carbon we aren't reducing our carbon uh, emissions nearly fast enough and we're very likely moving towards a world where you know it's going to be more than a two degree increase in temperatures. It's going to be closer to five or six. And at that point, with things like um, permafrost melting and ice caps melting and the what it does to you know the amount of energy that adds to the atmosphere to boost storms, to basically make really crazy weather, there'll be a lot of people who will be desperate enough to try something like this.
1: Well, this is the time in the movie where we would jump to the sudden shift in the world where everything becomes better that's not actually the case. John May is going to share something that is very challenging for humanity as a whole, and I just wanted to give you a second or two breather before we got back to the bad news.
0: Now here's the thing that is the most complex, arguably frustrating, and certainly uh for me, the most worrisome about these kinds of climate issues going forward. And that's climate is what's known as a hysteretic system. That is there's a lot of lag between cause and effect. So the warming, the climate effects, the global warming effects we're seeing today actually is a consequence of carbon put into the atmosphere back in the 60s and 70s. We could stop put, putting any additional carbon into the atmosphere right this very second, just stop globally. And we would still see decades of warming because of you know the embedded carbon in the atmosphere already, the effects that has what's known as ocean thermal inertia, the heat coming from the ocean that we've been putting into the ocean. and So you think about that, okay, there's still going to be, still being, there will be decades of warming even after we stop doing, putting any carbon into the atmosphere. So think about that not as a technical problem, although it's a technical problem, not as an ecological problem, although it's an ecological problem. Think of it as a political problem. So there you are, you are a leader. You managed to convince your country to make a radical change to its economy, radical change to human behavior, for people to stop eating meat, for people to, adopt electric vehicles or buses or walks or, or, or bicycles or just walk and nothing gets better. You've had you know, people have been kicking and screaming. Some people really love it. Some people hate it, but you've made, you managed to make this global change and nothing gets better. How do you think people are going to respond to that? Even if you explain to them, no, 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 that's, not, that's fine. It's not going to get better for until your kid's generation. But by the time your kids are adults, then it'll, it'll be starting to get better. There's going to be a, a lot of anger about that. There'll be a lot of people saying, hey, Fox News was right the whole time. This is all a big conspiracy to get us to be commies or whatever. There will be a lot of political anger about something that is a geophysical
1: process that we have no, we have no control over that climate is going to be a historic process, no matter what we do. And that's only the so, on side of the coin. You're also looking at multiple countries. If someone else is working exactly. towards improvement and I'm not, then I get short term benefits and there's all of the game theory that plays into that. Right, right. Exactly. And that's also where geoengineering starts to, you know, that's another
0: complex of geoengineering is who who decides what the target temperature is, who decides who controls this, because it doesn't take a global, it doesn't take global cooperation to engage in solar radiation management geoengineering. It just takes a moderate size airplane fleet. Yeah, uh, so you Belgium. could, you know, arguably Belgium could do this. Certainly Google would have the resources to do this. This is not something that requires the United Nations it just requires one relatively wealthy company or one reasonably well-off country. And you know, at that point, how do you stop it? If somebody decides to do this, if, if China decides to do this and the U.S. says, hey, you know, doing this seems to be affecting our, our agriculture in unpleasant ways. Or, yeah, you may be you know, maybe cutting temp- holding down temperatures, but it's actually triggering a massive drought in India. Who controls? Who decides to say no? Or who decides to say, yeah, we're gonna keep doing this because sorry, we need to we need to hold temperatures down. We need to deal with this, we need to take this action because it benefits us and doesn't and if it doesn't
1: benefit you, well, tough cookies. Gotta carry the biggest uh the biggest rock or whatever the term is Teddy Roosevelt had, which is a yep. very dangerous game to play. Indeed. So welcome to the future. You've described yourself previously as a natural pessimist. What are you optimistic about? My impending death. No, uh, <laughs> uh Actually, I'm a, I'm a
0: long-term optimist, short-term pessimist. I, I think that things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. But the things, you know, the the tools and the ideas that we have, the end of the century could be just near utopia if we can get through the first half of the century, you know, because of the kinds of tools that are in development, the kinds of things that we know how to do already, the changes that we can make in terms of economies, the changes we can make in terms of uh, inequalities. There's there's so much that we can do to make the world better and we know how to do it. That, you know, if we can get through this massive shock of the first half of the 21st century. There's a very real possibility and I think it's in us to actually make the world a wonderful place for just about everybody.
1: Is this the Fermi uh, filter? So I
0: do think I'm sorry. Is this the Fermi filter? Oh no, that, that that's an entirely separate thing. Although I, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be shocked to learn that that, that was what we're talking about, but No, I'm just talking in terms of what humans can do to ourselves and to the planet and what we have the potential to do. You know, we have a, there is a very real possibility that we can, we can kill ourselves, but there's also a very real possibility that we can make the world better. That the thing is, it's just going to take some time. I'm not going to see it. You may not see it, but you know, my uh,
1: nieces and nephews probably will. I get very different timescales from people. What, what three technologies are you most excited or promise, find most promising today or within the next CRISPR, 10, 15 years? CRISPR.
0: CRISPR, I think, is going to be
1: utterly revolutionary
0: you know, as we start figuring out exactly what we can do and what we can't do with this ability to essentially treat genetics like a word processor. The potential there is for you know, health care improvements, the potential there for climate improvements. I'm really optimistic about what can be done to eliminate horrible, horrible diseases. Using a tool like CRISPR, uh, I'm also optimistic, long-term optimistic about the role of automation. You know, and then setting aside any questions about singularities and self-aware machines and all that, simply the the increasing complexity and power of automated systems to do tedious work. You know, I, I think that one of the one of the hallmarks of the of the near utopia at the end of the 21st century that I think is a distinct possibility will be that humans do very little work and they do a lot of art.
1: Imagine all the people living for today.
0: That basically, you know about Burning Man, the Burning Man festival, of course. And uh if you think about it, if you've ever been, you know, Burning Man is essentially, you know, nearly a week of people making art, taking drugs, having sex. And imagine that is the future. That we have machines to do all the work, machines to do the tedious stuff, and humans are free to make art and have fun, however they want to think about fun. And maybe it's getting immersed in a video game system. Maybe it is just, you know, having sex with all sorts of wonderful sex robots or whatever. Really, honestly, whatever. That, that I think is a very plausible future for 80 years from now. And, <laughs> in many ways, the hardest thing about getting there will be getting over the hump of feeling like it's wrong. It's not going to be that it'll be difficult to do. It's going to be difficult to accept for pe- especially for people who grew up thinking that, you know, work is how you define yourself and, you know, being sober and, and calm
1: is the right way to live. Uh, the Protestant work ethic in the U S on the flip side though, yes. there's, so there, there's the argument that a lot of people have. Marijuana is a much a much safer drug than alcohol, and all pretty much all studies, et cetera. But at the same time, you kind of get into the slacker syndrome of you don't ever think bigger. What happens if we do get to a society where society doesn't ever think bigger? Society doesn't ever think bigger. Here's here's the dirty little secret: most
0: people are slackers, and whether they are slackers but they work or slackers but they raise their kids, very few people in our society, and I mean that not just the United States but globally very few people actually think big about the future. And I don't expect that to change. If we're, so if we're looking at the 2099 and uh, you have a lot of people who are taking, you know, doing the latest, the latest drugs and having all sorts of crazy sex and making a lot of really interesting art and playing a lot of video games, there will still be a percentage of people who find themselves inspired to think big, not because they're going to make a lot of money at it, but because it's just fascinating. And that's what you see right now. I see a lot of people who do this kind of stuff because it's fascinating. I don't make a lot of money, but I'm, you know, I make enough to, to get by. And I do this kind of stuff because it's really interesting, not because it's my, you know, my best, best path to uh, you know, retiring to a yacht. I don't
1: expect it, there to be any yachts in my future. We could get you a VR yacht. I'm sure we could set that up. <laughs> so, How do we move towards that future with the challenge of more or less needing to change the entire capital and political structure?
0: We, we do. And here's actually something that I've been thinking about for a while and I've talked to a few people about. If you look back at the end of the 19th century, the rise of industrialism, industrial capital, you also saw the rise of a variety of new kind of political and economic philosophies. Whether you're talking about Max Weber, whether you're talking about Karl Marx, uh, whether you're talking about the rise of fascism or the rise of communism, the rise of uh, universal democracy. You, you know, remember that women in the U.S. didn't get it, weren't able to vote until the you know, functionally the third the third decade of the twentieth century. And so, we see we saw, you know, a hundred a hundred odd years ago, we saw these new these new philosophies and these new models of how the economy works. And I think we are due for that again. That I, I do I do firmly believe, and this is more based on more based on hope than theory. I do firmly believe that the kind of economic and social system that will shape the end of this decade has not yet been articulated
1: i like how Jame said i do firmly believe and this is more based on hope than based on theory that we are moving towards a better world i like the freudian slip here because you can see even with long-term inherent optimism there are challenges and issues that need to be overcome and seemingly insurmountable obstacles part of the purpose of french fm Is to push others to go for that 10x, try to create something bigger and better. And while we don't know that we're going to make it, the best we can do is try. Now back to Yame and a little bit of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That we have not yet designed or come up with
0: or reified the the economic and political structure that will be relevant to the a fully digital, fully virtual, you know, fully automated world. We are still in the early 21st century, living. Based on rules that were that people came up with in the 19th century, and so that needs to change. And it will. I'm fairly convinced that it will change. I just can't tell you what it will be yet. It will look really different. People, you know, it's always a fun game to say, okay, you take somebody from, you know, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, and drop them into the present day. What would they find surprising? And a lot of what people would find surprising from, you know, 50 or 100 years ago. Would be around social changes. Yeah, the technology would be you know would be confusing at first, but cars are cars. And if you saw a phone in your home, you could understand that. Okay, yes, now in this future, you carry your phone with you. But the kinds of changes that they wouldn't expect to see with things like how come women are wearing trousers? You know, how come the people of different ethnicities are interacting with each other as if they're all equal? You know, these kinds of social changes would be really startling. Now, if you look back at let's pull somebody out of the the 18th century, somebody from the founding of the US or from the French Revolution, and drop them into the present, it would be that nothing would make sense. Not just why are women wearing trousers and you know, why are there black people, and not just the, the technologies, but how people are interacting with each other. What is This is not what commerce means. This is not what politics means. Really, the democracy of the founding of the, of the United States of America is very different from the democracy of the present. And would be, and what we have today would be very confusing to somebody from 250 years ago. And I think that looking ahead, what people have, what people will have in the year 2099, would be very confusing to somebody from today because of social roles, because of different kinds of, you know, whether you're talking about sexual or or interpersonal behavior. You know, what what does what what does politics look like? You know, is it a democracy? If just and this is just a an example of people have talked talked about. Is it still a democracy if your leaders are picked randomly? You know, everyone is a participant, but you don't actually vote. What you do is, is uh, you, you, it just randomly polls people, and you have that responsibility. Is democracy defined by a, a general vote, or is it defined by something else? And so you know, it's, this is part of what is exciting to me about foresight work, about futurism. It's, it's just trying to imagine a very, very different world, not simply because the tools are different, but because people are different because how we define ourselves, how we define our behavior, what we accept as normal, we
1: very, very different. And that is fascinating to me. What's your favorite sci-fi book author or series? I imagine there've been some very influential ones for you.
0: Um, The two that leap to mind uh, is the first is the, the culture series by Ian Banks who died a couple of years ago, unfortunately. The culture series, science fiction series set far flung future galaxy wide uh, society where AI and people live side by side and relate with each other in really weird and interesting ways. And to me, it's one of the better articulations of what a fully post scarcity near utopian future could look like where people do things because they're interesting and don't have to worry about how do I you know, how do I pay for my health care or you know, where do I live? It's it's all there. And easy to access, and you then can live your life doing really interesting shit, rather than trying to just knuckle down and pay your mortgage. Uh, and the stories are really are really interesting and provocative. Yeah, you know, one of my favorites is you know the story. Essentially, is that you the way the society punishes people who commit crimes is they create a a digital copy of the person's mind and subject that digital copy to you know essentially hell. That you are punished forever, as the digital version of you is being punished forever. That digital version of you that thinks it's you, that has all of your beliefs, has all of your sensitivities, has all of your memories, is being punished forever. And okay, that actually is a really fascinating idea. I mean, is it something that we would? You know, how would we think about that? How, how would what would we would we find that offensive? Would we find that compelling? Would we just laugh? I mean, what's the? You know So uh, Ian Banks wrote some really provocative and interesting stories. The other author that I would suggest. The other series is, it's actually a comic book that the the run is over. So you can actually get a collections of the entire thing. Transmetropolitan by Warren Ellis, the writer and Derek Robertson, the artist. Transmetropolitan is a story of a journalist in a unspecified future running up against a corrupt government in a world of transhuman technologies and nanotech and invasive social media, and really weird genetic engineered food. I mean, think about that for a second. If you can actually create uh, lab-grown meat where you take a cell and, and basically nurture it and you can create any kind of meat from a core cell, and people are doing that with beef, people are doing it with you know, other kinds of, of conventional food meats, there's nothing to prevent you from making a human burger. That doesn't require injuring you know, any person. But you could create human meat. And that's the kind of thing that shows up in this kind of transmetropolitan society is just whatever kind of weird future you can imagine probably happening there. And if the culture books are really, you know, for me, the best articulation of what a post-scarcity society looks like, transmetropolitan is for me, one of the best articulations of just how weird the future is probably going to be like a black mirror. Except black mirror, imagine a black mirror without the overweening uh, pessimism yeah, things are pretty screwed up, but people in these futures don't see them as screwed up. People in the, in this future, yeah, no, we deal with it. Yeah, yeah it's, you know, things works. are corrupt, and things are, are messed up, but hey, there's some really cool stuff happening too. And, whereas Black Mirror in the episodes that I've seen, tends, you know, the people there tend to recognize
1: the dystopian aspects. It's like inserting people from today into a dystopian future. I, I have one main last question that I wanted to dig into. So I found it incredibly impressive. You were, on the first, you were on the first panel for TED in 2006, and it was, it was a great talk. But throughout the process, you said something to the effect of mobile phones will be one of the most transformational or important technologies of our lives, mm-hmm. which, A, was very well, very well seen, especially at that time. But what do you see as the next wave or the next most important technology down the horizon for the individual? Oh, goodness.
0: Well, just to, to quickly clarify, with regards to TED, so this TED has been going on for a while, and so TED two thousand six was it, that was my first time there, but uh, it's been going on for a while, and that was actually a really interesting situation. The the people behind TED had been uh, had had been a funder for the website that a colleague of mine had started and was had been writing for, called worldchanging and so we were invited. He, uh, my colleague Alex spoke at TED Europe, and I got to speak at TED. Ted in Monterey, Uh, and uh, I had the very bizarre experience of being told to the last minute that I'll be opening for Al Gore. And so the very last session of the very last day, you'll be opening for Al Gore. So just a little bit of anxiety over the course of the week, and it seemed to go well. What technologies will be most important going forward or looking ahead? If you're looking, if you're hoping that I'm going to come up with something that would be as surprising as uh, uh, networked mobile phones were back in 2006. Uh, I'm not sure I can give I, I can satisfy you like that because I think that that automation uh, in particular the automation of of jobs is going to be transformative in a way that we still don't even have a sense of what the broad what the larger implications will be. So to take one example, probably one of the first
1: industries to be shifted over to near complete automation will be truck driving. Whoa, time out! You think you've heard this story before? You haven't. This is why Jame is one of the top futurists of today, and one of the best forecasters for the future. The people who drive big
0: rig trucks across across the U.S., across Europe, across Australia, wherever—people who do these kinds of long haul trucking—there are all sorts of regulations to basically prevent them from from uh, spending too much time driving, or to to keep themselves awake with drugs or whatever. And so we have all these regulations on trucks that are based on the fragility of the human body, and if we And if self-driving trucks become as prevalent as they seem like they will be, then you're going to have hundreds of thousands of jobs lost and not just the truckers. Think about if you're familiar at all with long haul trucking in the US, you know that there are truck stops all over the place. Uh, Truck stops being places where trucks refuel and the uh, drivers may take a shower or get something to eat. There are lots of people employed at these truck stops, both in formal jobs, you know, people running the stores, you know, informal jobs like the people selling drugs or selling their bodies in the, in the parking lots. And these people will lose their jobs as well. And that would just further accelerate the decline of small town America. And I suspect that there are, there are similar kinds of structures in Europe, in Australia. And these, these same kinds of, the same kind of result will happen there of the economies that have grown up around a particular kind of industrial behavior will evaporate. And we're going to see that happen time and again around jobs being automated. And one of the interesting implications of all of this is that the jobs that are most likely to survive, the jobs that are, you, you can get and will probably still be around in 20, 30, 50 years, are the jobs that are most based on empathy. So you, you can have a, if you have a robot that can comfort a crying five year old, then you've hit the singularity and all bets are off. But in the time, for now, you can have automated systems do a pretty decent job of or a comparatively decent job of teaching at the university level or at least educating at the university level, but that's not going to work for kindergarten. Surgery is already a heavily automated process and that's only going to increase, but you're not going to replace a nurse with a uh, with a robot because a nursing job is heavily heavily based on empathy. And you can sort of go across a spectrum of, of work where you see that there's one kind of job that probably can be automated you know, replaced with a machine learning system or whatnot. And then a related job that is so heavily driven by empathy that it's not going to be machine replaceable anytime soon. You know, somebody who is a fashion designer, replaceable. Somebody who is a hairdresser, probably not replaceable. And what you'll see as a consistent part of this is that most of these empathy-driven jobs are traditionally or conventionally performed by women, school teachers, nurses, hairdressers, etc., 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 these jobs that are heavily empathy-based are heavily pink-collar. And so if we're moving into a society where all these kinds of industrial and knowledge-based uh, rote jobs, you know, like lawyer, are increasingly becoming automated, are increasingly being mechanized or machine learninged away, the jobs that, will, that remain are the jobs that have been performed by women. What does that do to gender roles? What does that do to how different how people um, perceive themselves. Will these suddenly become male jobs? And, th- and that's happened before. When you first had the advent of digital computer si- computing systems, back in the uh, uh, post-World War II era, computer programming was a woman's job. Most computer programmers in the 19, you know, late 40s into the 50s were women. And when that changed, when the perception of the value of that role changed, suddenly these became men's jobs. And so, you saw this really radical shift away from something being considered a woman's job being something considered a man's job. And so, there is a very real possibility that you look ahead in 20 years, 30 years, jobs that we have in the, you know, historically or re- in recent history considered to be female would become men's jobs because that's you know, the role of the male. That, I don't think that's, that is going to happen, but it's a possibility. You know, it could very well be that there is a complete disruption of the role of the the breadwinner for a family or I mean, this just really all sorts of interesting questions that arise from this. And so when I look at automation, I'm not just looking at the future of you know, robot butlers or, or even just, or even the future of robot taxi drivers, I'm looking at what does it mean to how we perceive ourselves? What does it mean to the roles that we, that we have been, that have been embedded in our minds and our, uh, and our cultures for decades or centuries, because these get changed. Because as you know, so as we have this cycle, we have this cycle of culture affecting the norms and the the meaning of our technologies, and these new technologies affecting how our cultures express themselves. And this is ongoing process that is fascinating and terrifying and enormously important to keep to keep an eye on
1: and rapidly accelerating. I know and we've, rapidly accelerating. We've had you on for a while, Jame. I have one last question. That's what would you like to leave people with and ask a challenge, a problem to tackle? What do you think, or what would you like to leave our listeners with? today?
0: I would like to ask people to ask
1: themselves
0: what what can they do so that the world around them is better in 10 years? And so not just what they can do to make things better tomorrow, but what can they do in their lives that they believe will make the world better in a decade? So something slow, something big, something relentless, what kind of changes can they make to their behavior? What kind of changes can they make to their physical environment? What can they do differently that they believe will make the world a better place in a decade?
1: And that's what I'd ask, like people to think about. And I'd add on to that. It's really not too hard to 10 X your goal. You only have to think slightly differently. So I would say, let's look at 10 xing what you can do. There you go. John, May, thanks for coming on. Where's the best place for people to find you online? Uh, Open the future.com.
0: Uh, that has uh, Archives of stuff I've written, and videos of talks I've given, and interviews, and the like, and um, has all sorts of contact information. I'm I'm pretty a pretty regular user of Twitter, and that's uh, at Casio C A S C I O. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm happy to talk. I'm pretty open online, and I'm uh, happy to
1: engage in conversation. And thank you for having me as a part of this, Matt. And clearly very knowledgeable and interesting. Thanks for coming. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> thank you. If you want more of Fringe FM, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to Fringe.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interviews with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. And you can follow me on Twitter at It's Matt Ward. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review in iTunes to help more people discover Fringe FM.